Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Welcome again to Bridge Church. Uh, My name is Rasul Berry. I'm the teaching pastor here. And uh, our lead pastor, James, is away for the day. And so he's given me the opportunity to continue on in this series, Proclaim, that we've just started last week, going through the Gospel of John. And um, as we had mentioned um, earlier last week, that there's going to be a reading series in the emails that you can see, uh, like where you can actually follow along with us. Uh, We're going to be giving you uh, the sermon notes uh, that come from that, uh, our preparation, um, and so that you can even kind of dig deeper because this book is so rich that there's only, we only get the time to scratch the surface of all that is going on there. And we want you to be able to experience this with us. As we go into this section in the second half of John chapter one, um, it's an interesting one in this idea of proclaim uh, because it really reveals what does it look like for us to use our influence uh, in order to proclaim uh, this truth that we sing about. And, you know, there's a lot of talk nowadays about influencers, right? Like we hear and read all the time about social media influencers and those who seem to have a platform. And I get to see that up close and personal at home. My, my, my wife is a, a huge fan of YouTubers, Uh, specifically beauty-oriented YouTubers, right? So for those who may be uninitiated with this, there's a whole cottage industry, well, more than a cottage now, uh, more of an industrial complex, um, of a genre of YouTube that involves people who are, kind of try out a project, a product, kind of display that product, actually show you, uh, you know, what you watch to see them, put it on, and then they give you a review about why they think you should or shouldn't use this product. And as I'm at home, I get to see my wife do this, and one person in particular she's a big fan of is uh, Jackie Ina. Now, Jackie is a, okay, some of you also are fans. This, um, well, see, there's a whole thing. So my wife, uh, she's really a big fan of hers. And Jackie is a Nigerian-American who uh, just got started doing this just because of her passion for beauty and products and also especially, you know, reviewing things that would be uh, helpful for women with darker complexions, which oftentimes the industry doesn't really represent or see or hear. And so people flocked to her and she began to just kind of share what she thought worked best for her. Now she has over 4 million followers on YouTube who subscribed as she puts out content twice a week. And I, my wife in particular follows and, is, and will bear witness to you that she trusts Jackie and the perspectives that she gives on these different products. And Jackie is kind of blown up herself. Now she has even her own co-branded palette with Anastasia Beverly Hills. Praise the Lord. Yes, hot off the press. But you don't have to look to them, uh, to just her. There's, I mean, if you look at probably who is the queen of the social media influencer, you have to go no further than Kylie Jenner, who has 161 million followers, right? And if you look at posts like this where she's rocking Chanel, if you can't see, that's all of the white lettering on the uh, outfit that she's wearing and in the hat. 
And you would think this is just kind of a spontaneous moment that somebody just decides to just kind of capture on their day. Well, most industry experts would claim that Chanel spent about $1 million to have her post this. Can you imagine? A million dollars for a post. One post. That's the type of influence and perspective that she has. And she is championing the cause of being a witness to tell the world Chanel is where it's at. But we don't have to just go into the the social media influencer space. A few years back, there was a certain person that came out of high school that everyone wanted to be a witness of and say, he is the chosen one. He is the king. And we cheer as he got chalk and puffed it up in the sky and we said, we are all witnesses. Who am I talking about, y'all? LeBron James, you can go to that, right? And so if you want to get into a, a heated conversation to this day, 17 seasons later, ask a question about, see, already, I didn't even get the question out. I didn't even get a chance to say who is the GOAT, and already he's making the case for me. So people are passionate about being a witness and declaring that they are a witness about most things. But not everything. There's some things that we find it harder and harder to bear witness about nowadays. Uh, the Barner Group is a group that studies culture and faith and different trends that happen, especially in the United States. And what they found is that they look at this specifically by generation. And they asked the question to those who would identify as Bible believing Christians is being a witness, right, of is sharing. The, what you believe about Jesus, an important part of your faith? They asked that question. And the response of millennials was overwhelmingly yes. 95% of those polled said that, yes, I believe that a, a core tenet of my faith in Christ is to tell other people about him. That's what they believe to be the truth. So then Barner asked another question, and this time around, they, they asked this other scenario, and this is kind of, they said, do you agree or disagree with this statement? It is wrong to share my personal beliefs in hopes that someone of a different faith will one day share my faith. It is wrong to. And they said, who agrees or disagrees? And what they found was that 53% of those in the same demographic category of millennials would agree that say, no, it's, it's not wrong. It's, 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 it's an important thing to share my faith, even with people who have a different faith, which means that 47%, think about this, of those who said, yes, it's an important part of my faith to tell people about Jesus, thought that it was morally wrong to do it. Now, of course, some of this has a lot of backlash, a backdrop to it. Um, We know that in some circle, you know, when you look at history and the relationship between colonialism and imperialism and, and the spread of Christianity, that there's this, 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 un, this, this unholy connection that happened and people wanting to distance themselves from this idea of going and saving the savage or going and, and in the name of religion confronting and, and, t- and tearing other people's culture down, right? Like that, that's a real thing and it's something that we have to take hold of and acknowledge and realize. But part of the problem with our cultural memory is that we act as if Christianity started with Europe and with like the Atlantic, transatlantic slave trade, but that was like 
14, 15, 1600s, when you want to look at the beginning, 1619, we just acknowledged 400-year anniversary of the first slave that was brought over to the United States. But do you realize that means that there was a whole millennia and a half of Christianity prior to any of that happening? And so what we're going to look at today is actually the, we get to see the first witness, because this is what Jesus is asking today. Can I get a witness? Can I get a witness? Like, I, I know that you fans of LeBron and Nike, right? I know that you want to, you wear the sweatshirts. I'm a witness, right? Like, I know you down with Jackie, right? And all of what she does. But can I get a witness? Can I get a brand ambassador? And so we're going to get to look at the first one, and it's, we see the first introduction of this person in John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Now, there's the gospel writer, John, and then there's the Baptist, John, two different people. And so the writer tells us there was a man sent from God whose name was John, talking about the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, you don't need a uh, doctor in theology to be able to see from these three verses, what is the point of emphasis? What word do you see popping up again and again and again? Talk to me now. Witness. That's, that's, so, so that's clearly the framework and the understanding. And so John becomes the first witness of Jesus. Right there in Palestine in the first century. And what we get to see is look at the interaction, and it's very instructive for us to look at John's life and see the implications and the interaction of what did it mean and look like to be a witness of Jesus. And I think it's instructive for us, yes, two millennia later, and we see what does it mean for us to be witnesses. So in verse 19, we get the full intro of this section of the passage. It says, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask, who are you? Now, we need some context in order to understand what's happening here. Because you see, John had begun baptizing people in the Jordan River. Now, he did this away from the city of Jerusalem. He did this without permission, outside of the structures of the priests and the Levites and all of those. And so it was causing a stir. Thousands were coming to him outside of this uh, without permission. And so they started getting nervous in Jerusalem. Now, when John, the gospel writer, refers to the Jews, we need to recognize he's talking specifically about the power authorities in, Jeru in Jerusalem because everybody involved in this are Jewish people, right? Like the writer, the Baptist, the priest, and the Levites. They are all Jews. But he specifically, when he uses that term, mostly referring to those who were in opposition with him in Jerusalem. And it says that they sent people, emissaries, if you will, to interrogate John and go like, yo, bro, like, <laughs> who do you think you are? Like, you know, like this whole, like, religious thing, like we are the ways that who instructs the people. Like you, what you doing all of a sudden causing a revival out in the wilderness, telling people they need to repent. Like who gave you the, who are you? And the interesting thing is in John's response. We see, he says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. 
Now, this was a very important answer because essentially what they were thinking was that their anticipation and their expectation was that the only one who would have the authority to start doing this kind of a, like widespread revival and all this hope that people had because the Roman Empire was oppressing them was that the Messiah was going to come and just like your big brother, be able to beat the bully who was beating you up. And so their, their thought was that the Messiah was going to do this, and there was a lot of expectation around this right now. And so when John starts making this noise, they say, well, maybe you think you're the Messiah, and that's what would give you the authority to do this. Now, in that recent history, they had many people who had claimed to be the Messiah. Just about a hundred and so years before, Judas Maccabees led a re- revolution, a rebellion against the Roman emperor uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, who actually went into the temple, slaughtered a pig there to defile it and put up his own gods. And so the Maccabees started to revolt against them, clean the temple out, and also claimed that they were messianic figures themselves because it would generate more confidence and trust in the people. And so people in the past that had had big movements did claim to be the Christ. John says, no, I am not the Christ. But here's an important point. When you witness to the light, some people believe you are trying to get the shine. You ever had that happen? Like, you know, people will say, you know, you're just trying to just like love Jesus and and walk with him. And then people are, oh, what, you think you're holier than now? oh, you think you're trying to, you're better than us now, right? Like, you know, you go back and folks are doing something that you ain't, you know, you feel in your convictions and based on what you understand about Jesus, you don't do those things anymore. And then they feel conviction and then they think you're trying to say you're better. And you're like, I'm not saying I'm the Christ. I'm just bearing witness to him. And so the important thing there is to be careful not to accredit yourself with the fruit and the light that people see in you. Because it can be easy to kind of take the credit, right? Like, oh, you're such a great person. Look at how much integrity you have. And, and be like, yeah, I'm kind of dope. It's like, no, you're not. You are not the Christ. But they weren't satisfied with that answer, so they continued to interrogate him. Verse 21, and they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So then they said to him, well, who who are you that we need to give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? Now, once again, we can kind of get lost in the sauce here. And we're like, well, why would they, if they know his name, do they not know his name is John? Why are they calling him Elijah? A prophet? Like, what does that mean? And so a couple, a little bit of historical context. Elijah was considered one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. But one thing that was unique about Elijah is that at the end of his life, we see that God just take him up in the sky. Like, he doesn't die physically. He just gets, like, snatched up. Like, just gone. Like, not died, like not dead. So there was an expectation that Elijah would come back. In fact, if you go in right into the middle of your Bible and see Old Testament, New Testament split, the very last verse in the Old Testament is a prophecy that Elijah would come back and prepare the way for the Lord. So they were like, okay, Elijah's coming back. Are you saying that you're Elijah? And he's like, no, I'm not Elijah. Then they're like, oh, okay, then are you the prophet? Now, the prophet was in Deuteronomy 18. We see that Moses tells the people that now Moses was the greatest of all the leaders, right? Wrote the first five books, gave them the law, the Ten Commandments. So there was nobody greater in Jewish history and and, and religious faith than Moses. And so Moses said, yo, there's going to be one who comes that's even greater than me, and he's going to lead you into all truth. And they're like, so, and he called them the prophet in Deuteronomy 18. And so they said, are you the prophet then, since you're not Elijah? 
Nope, not him. Then they're like, well, then who are you? Because we need to give an answer to those who sent us. Now, isn't it interesting that they didn't come themselves because they weren't interested really in what John was about. They were just interested in refuting what he was preaching. He said, what do you say about yourself, John? So we can snitch. (laughs) What you doing? And it says, he said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Oh, this is so rich. So when John's response, oh, you want to know who I am? Okay, well, I'll tell you. Open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Now, in that particular passage in Scripture, what John is pointing them to was the expectation. See, God had given uh, Isaiah this vision while the people were in exile in Babylon. You see, exile was the, the worst possible experience for the people of God who had been given a promised land, but because of their sin and because of their injustice and because of their unrighteousness toward one another, God sent them away into Babylon as exiles. We just went through a whole series on that. And Daniel, if you want to learn more, you can go check that out. But in any case, as they were waiting and hoping and just trying to figure out, is there a hope for us? God gave Isaiah this vision and said, yo, even though you're in the wilderness, there's going to be one who goes into the wilderness and don't think evergreen trees, think desert in the Judean wilderness. And he says that though you're in the desert and though there doesn't seem to be any path toward me, there's one who I'm going to send who's going to make a straight path so that you can get to God in the midst of all the brokenness around you. And, and all of a sudden, John says, that's who I am. So they're like, well, then why are you baptizing it? Because, I mean, what is that about? And then look at what his response. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He's like, oh, see, first of all, you're getting it twisted. See, you're so caught up in ritual and form that you don't understand the spiritual baptism that's about to take place. See, the word baptism is from the Greek baptizo, which means to be immersed in. So the sign of baptism in water is a sign about how you're immersed in the spirit of God. And what he's saying is that I am giving this as a sign about what's going to happen in the spirit. And what's going to happen is this one to come who is actually standing around right, right here near you, that he's going to be the one who baptized you in the spirit. Now they're looking like, Levite, you? No, not me. Priest, you? No, not me. Who, who is he talking about? And what God is also saying is he's breaking down this sense of authority that they think they have to say, look, God doesn't need your approval. That the, that the one that I'm talking about, this Jesus that you don't know about, like he actually is divinely sent from God and he bypasses human authority and human approval. He just directly reveals himself. But look at how John describes. He says, and don't get it twisted. I know who I am and who, my relationship to him is one I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. Now, as weighty as that might seem and clear, if you understand in their culture, they were mostly walking around in air Jesuses, right? Like sandals. <laughs> and these, this was in a, <laughs> this is in the ancient Near East, dust and just dirt and everywhere, and you walk in, you hoofing it all over the place. And so the lowliest job for the lowliest servant was reserved for taking off someone's sandals and washing their feet. And 
it was so considered beneath people that even rabbis could not have their disciples wash their feet. They were like, they, that was like against the rules. I mean, bunions, corns, dirt, funk. They're like, we're not, you can't do that, right? Like, that's not too hard for us to grasp, right? Nobody wants to do that. And he says, yo, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. I'm, that job is too lofty for me because I know who my Jesus is. His perspective was shaped by this. So then the question that it forms for us is, who gets more shine, your brand or Jesus' glory? That's the question we have to ask ourselves is like, well, maybe it's hard for me to be a witness because I'm not really about team Jesus as much as I am about team me. And what does it mean for people to follow me or what do my followers think of me if I represent this Jesus too hard? But for John the Baptist, he recognizes, oh, I know who needs the most shine. I know who needs more shine. I know I'm about his glory more than I am my brand. Are you? Am I? So for John, it was easy to ask that question and to respond. It says, the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's talking with them. Can you imagine? And he's saying, hey, if you look at um, the other gospels, they record like what John was teaching and he'd be like, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And they're like, what should we do? He was like, you stealing, stop stealing. They're like, oh, you're oppressing people? Stop it. He was like, oh, so he's just teaching and doing his thing. And all of a sudden, while he's teaching, he's like, behold, the Lamb of God. And they're all turning around like, whoa, what does that mean? And he's pointing to this guy in the crowd that looks just like everybody else. But why would he call him a lamb? That's a weird name to call a man. <laughs> right? Like, why are you calling him a lamb, John? And it says, the key who takes away the sin of the world. You see, there had been a long-standing tradition, especially the crowning moment, the main moment for the people of, of faith to follow the children of Abraham was the time that we see in Genesis chapter 22 when Abraham takes his son Isaac up to the mountain because God told him to sacrifice him. And right there, as they're going up the mountain, Isaac said to his father, Abraham, hey, <laughs> dad, like, we got the wood, check. That's on the checklist. You got the fire for the, you know, sacrifice. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Like, something's missing, right? We're going up to offer sacrifice before God, and I don't see a lamb. And Abraham says, oh, God will provide. And then he ties his son Isaac to the altar, and as he raises the knife to kill him, God tells him to stop through an angel and says, there's a, lamb, a ram in the bush because he didn't want him to sacrifice his own son. He was just testing his faith. And now he's saying, oh, oh, you remember the Passover? Like Moses, right when I was about to deliver you from Egypt and from slavery and from oppression and from bondage. And then what did I tell you to do? The 10th plague, the last plague, I told you to slaughter a lamb, put its blood over your door so that the angel of death will pass by. And he's saying, now behold the lamb who covers your sin the one who's going to take it completely away. Those were just previews. Those were just snapshots for the thing that was to come, which is Jesus, and he will take your sins 
away. We are witnesses that the lamb has taken our sins away. Is anybody else here a witness? See, I remember what I was like when I was trying to take my own sins away. I always fell short. There was always things that even when I was trying to do the right thing, I fell short. And that wasn't even half the time. Sometimes I just didn't even want to do the right thing. I wanted to do what I want. I was still trying to figure out, how do I take my sins away? And the answer was, you can't. There's no one righteous. There's no one good enough. God doesn't grade on the curve. It's 100% is pass fail. And if you're not perfect, you fail. And so I'm excited when I think about the fact that the Lamb of God takes away my sin. So I'm going to be a witness to that. And so John clearly proclaims that. And so as a result of hearing that, now, one of the things that the text doesn't fully flush out but up until this point, but he had a following. People weren't just going there to be baptized by John, but he, they were also going there to be a part of this ministry that he was doing and his teaching and his preaching. And they were his disciples, his followers. And so it says the next day after hearing their leader, their rabbi, John the Baptist, teach and behold, point to Jesus as the lamb. It says, they followed Jesus. They left John and started following Jesus. And then it says, Jesus turned and saw them and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. <laughs> now, this is one of those passages where you can kind of get lost. Like, I don't know what's happening right here. Like, it seems kind of creepy to be like, hey, Jesus, I'm just going to start following you. Like, I don't, you know, he kind of just turns around like, yo, what you want? <laughs> like, like, they didn't even have any dialogue. They just decided I'm starting to follow him. And then <laughs> they, this is a weird question, right? Like, he asked them, what do you want? And then they're like, where are you staying? Like, can you imagine in New York, somebody just starts following you around, and then you're like, hey, what do you want? You're like, hey, where do you live? <laughs> and it's like... I'm good. <laughs> and then look at his response. Come and you will see. Like that, this whole thing, what's happening? And if, if you don't understand that though the parentheses there tells us that a rabbi was like what we would consider a teacher, the context of it is much deeper than that in their time. You see, rabbis were people that were kind of, they weren't just giving them information. It's not like a professor in college where you just go to class, you take some notes, and then you go home. No, they would say, yo, the way for me to get closer to God is to follow you so closely that whatever, that I'm going to actually move and live near you. I'm going to actually stay where you stay so that I can see your whole life not just what you communicate from your mouth, that I can study everything that you do, and as a result of that, I can become more like you because I believe in what you're teaching holistically. So that's why they wanted to know where he was living because what they're saying is, yo, we're going to like follow you completely. So the picture, more than a professor, is more like a sensei in the martial arts. And there was a movie that came out a while ago called The Karate Kid, and I know, no, 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 no. I'm not talking about Jaden Smith. I love Jaden. And that was a cute little movie. I'm talking about the real original Karate Kid, Mr. Miyagi and Danielson. Who knows something about that, right? Now, Danielson, let me just catch people up because this is where it was similar. Like he was getting bullied at school and, and so he didn't know how to defend himself. And so he ends up getting Mr. Miyagi to train him. So he goes there the first day. He's like, yeah, I'm going to learn some karate. Like, like, yeah, I'm going to be good. Then I can protect myself. So he's like, yeah, you want to teach me to, 
And Mr. Miyagi's like, uh, oh, you know, welcome, Daniel's son. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, lesson one, wax on, wax off. Go clean my cars. Go wax my cars, my old vintage models cars. And he's like, all right, this old man can't do everything, so I'm going to go wash the cars. And then I wash the cars, and then he goes back the next day. He's like, all right, now I'm going to learn something. <laughs> and he says, uh, paint the fence. So then he starts painting the fence. He's like, all right, cool. Well, this next day, that's what I'm going to do. So then he comes back the next day. He's like, all right, now I'm going to learn something. <laughs> He's like, sand the floor. He's like, now that's it. I'm not doing all your chores. I'm gone. Peace out. And he goes to walk away, and Mr. Miyagi just says, Daniel son. <laughs> and he stops. He says, come back. And so he then begins to tell Daniel to do all the moves that he trained him to do, the wax on and the wax off. But this time, Mr. Miyagi starts to hit and swing at him. And he goes, wax on, wax off. Then he, wax on, wax on. And all of a sudden, he realizes, yo, he's teaching me karate. I thought I was just washing his cars. And see, here's the point. Because he listened to the sensei, he actually started to learn things that he didn't even know what the sensei was teaching him. And that's how Jesus does with us. We come up and we want to like, yo, I want, I want my best life, Jesus. Like, I want my come up. Like, I want to level up, Jesus. And we're like, oh, word? Okay, first thing, pray when you wake up in the morning. And you're like, uh, wait, what that got to do with like my goals and like my brand, Jesus? And you're like, okay, all right, all right. Here's the next lesson. Read this Bible every day. And you're like, huh? But I want like a relationship. And I'm like, what, what does that got to do with that? Just read the Bible. You're like, all right, cool. Then you come back and he's like, okay, now. You have conflict with your friends and your family. Go and address them to resolve that conflict. You're like, Jesus, I want to be successful. What does this have to do with anything? And then he's like, okay, this next lesson. Be sexually abstinent before you're married. And it's like, all right, that's it. I'm done. That, I, I, that ain't going to work. What are you doing? And it's like, but if you stop and you listen and you pay attention, what you start to realize is he's building things in you that you don't even realize. You don't even know. He's building self-discipline. He's building love. Oh, you wanted, you wanted patience? Well, guess how he gave you that patience? By giving you the people in your life that you need to confront and be patient with. But here's the key question that we have to ask. Do I want to follow what my sensei or do I want to do what the sensei say? Which one? Because you can't have it both ways. Either you will do what your sensei or you will follow the sensei. You can't have it both ways. We gotta choose, we gotta pick. Here's how Tim Keller put it. He said, uh, Pastor Tim Keller, you are not a witness until you are willing to say, I submit all my mind, all of my heart, and all of my behavior completely to everything he tells me to do in his word, regardless of the consequences, regardless of whether it looks practical or not, I will obey him completely. And when we do that, we'll find that his answers are better than our questions. We are witnesses when we follow the rabbi. Even if I don't understand, Maybe especially when I don't understand. So then, but look at what happens next. So then these, <laughs> these disciples, they leave John. They start following Jesus. And then it says in verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. 
he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. Once again, another John. That was a very popular name. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So immediately, the first action that we see Andrew take is to go and tell his brother, yo, we have found the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that we have been hoping for would rescue and redeem us as a people and as individuals. And Peter comes and, you know, as his name, his name is Simon at this point, he's like, hey, and Jesus is like, hey, nice to meet you, Simon. Uh, Your name is now Peter. I mean, that's kind of bold, right? Like to just come up to somebody and then just change their name, like immediately, like no talk, your name is Peter. And the key thing there, it says Cephas, which means Peter, because what this is, is a play on words, is that Cephas actually meant rock. Now, the thing that was weird about this, now think about this, we wouldn't have a Peter if it wasn't for his brother Andrew introducing him to Jesus and being a witness. Like he, and he ends up becoming the leader of the disciples. But if you look at the story, you would see why Andrew was probably surprised that, P, that Jesus called him a rock because he was anything other than stable. He was the one that would always put his foot in his mouth. He was the one that even when everyone, Jesus said, like, yo, I'm going to the cross. And then he turned and Peter's like, no, you're not. You, you don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. <laughs> And he's like, you know, like you contradicting Jesus now? You're trying to, you, you, you know. And he was the one that when Jesus said, look, all y'all going to betray me. And Simon is like, nah, you know, I don't know about John because he kind of soft, you know what I mean? My brother Andrew is, yeah, you know. But me? No way. I'm going to deny you, Jesus. And he's like, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. This is that guy that he's calling a rock and stable? But here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. Jesus doesn't call him and he doesn't see us by what we currently are, but what he's going to do in us, by what we're going to be. He's not deterred by the fact that he's a little bit rough around the edges because Jesus is more concerned with what he's going to do in us than what we currently are. And this is why we have to be witnesses. There are people that you look at and go, I ain't telling them about Jesus. What? Them come to Jesus? Are you kidding me? He's calling himself Jesus. He would never come to Jesus. Like, like, not that person. Like, no, they are too far. But the reality is, imagine if someone would have said that about us. Imagine if somebody would have been like, no, not them. They're too far. We all got a too far moment. There are, if we replay the tape of our lives, there would be people who go, not that person. Not them. In fact, there's still people who don't believe it. <laughs> They're like, oh, wait, like... Like, like, like the girl there you try to get with, you know what I mean? Or like, okay, who are you trying to impress? Or, oh, this is just a phase. But we, but we are witnesses because God sees us for not just who we are, but what we can be. And we can't figure that out. You know, did you think Andrew thought when he told Peter to come follow that he would be his leader? But this is why we have to be witnesses. And this is also a good news for those who might be here and you're like still checking on the claims of Jesus. And you're like, yo, there's no way that he can use me. And God is like, look, I don't care where you've been. It's all about where you're going. And because I'm the Lamb of God who takes away your sins, I am the divine reset button. And I change your whole life around. And that's why we are witnesses. So then we look at what happens next. The next day. And it just keeps going. The next day. This is all the same week, y'all. 
the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. So it takes a little road trip. He found Philip and said to Philip, come follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethesda, the city of Andrew and Peter. They homeboys. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Philip goes from, hey, come follow me, getting the invite from Jesus, to then immediately going and telling his brother Nathaniel, like the same day. Now, the interesting thing about this is that he is, first of all, he specifies Moses is talking about this in the law. Remember when they were talking about the prophet that they were claiming that John or asking if John was? He's like, oh, this is actually the guy. This is the prophet. And then he's like, oh, and then also the prophets wrote about, uh, he's pointing to Elijah and the rest of them, they're like, yo, he's talking about Jesus. And then he gives this, this little detail who's from Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, Nathaniel's built a little different than Peter. Peter just went and came. This is what Nathaniel says. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> Wait, hold on. You trying to tell me the Messiah is from Nazareth? Nazareth. Wait, hold on, hold on. Like, he's like, Brownsville? <laughs> I got to just kind of make it plain, right? Like, He's like, Flatbush? <laughs> like, you know, some people are like, yo, the Messiah is... He's, he's like, no, you can't mean that. Just for context, this is a town in which it's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not like Jerusalem. It's not like Bethlehem where it's like, yo, we got like pedigree. Like, they're like, nobody... Nazareth? And not only that, clearly from the reputation, he's asking questions. Can anything good... <laughs> anything at all come from Nazareth. And I love Philip's response. He doesn't try to just wow him with some deep theological answer. I mean, he did just start following Jesus the same day, right? He just said, come and see. That's very instructive for us. Somebody starts hitting you with some questions and you don't know how to respond. Just come. I don't know. know. Come and see. But here's the other point. And this is why I'm messing with Brownsville and Flatbush, but this is the important thing, right? Like, yo, Jesus will totally redeem and says, yes, I, I go after the people from the places that people don't think I should be going after. That's actually where I move. Yes, I do that. And yes, I know your past. Yes, I know where you came from. And you know what? That's when I just roll up my sleeves. That's when I warm up my hands and I do a work that everybody then goes, wow from Nazareth. <laughs> Dope. That's our story. I, that's my, I need to, just so you know, I'm messing with you. North Philly? I'm from North Philly. The people be like, North Philly? Could anything good come from North Philly? And I'm like, yo, the Lord did his work in my life. Single parent home? North Philly? Dad selling drugs? North Philly? Like what? And it's like, it don't matter where you're from. It matters where you're at. Somebody come on. Who near, somebody in here, do I got a witness that God redeems a broken past, that Jesus does his work? Anybody else? <laughs> so then Jesus comes and he says, okay, I see who you are, Nathaniel. And Nathaniel says to him, how do you know me? <laughs> and Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. This is the next verse you can go to. Nathaniel said to him, 
<laughs> like, wait a minute, wait, you, and Jesus was like, oh, just, just to put you in the right theological framework, yes, you came to follow me, but I already saw you anyway. You see, some of us know that like, even when we weren't even thinking about Jesus, we undermining our own business, doing our own thing. Matter of fact, trying to absolutely avoid him. And he's like, yo, like I saw you in that situation. I had already picked you before you picked me. He said, I saw you. I saw you. I saw you. You know what the deep thing is? Look at Philip's, Nathan, Nathaniel's response. And he answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. He's like, you know me. And this is another important thing about being a witness. You see, we live in a culture where everybody's trying to find themselves and figure out who they are and what their identity really is. And Jesus is coming and saying, you can't know yourself unless you know me. I made you. I saw you when you were in your, asking the deepest questions in your life that you could possibly ask and wrestle with your identity. That's not something you were meant to try to figure out. Matter of fact, I have an, owner, an owner's manual for your life, and I've told you about yourself and who you're supposed to be. And it's only when you actually work the way I tell you to can you actually maximize your true identity. Otherwise, you'll be trying to fit into the frameworks that other people find. It's amazing to me how people are thinking, like, yo, I'm on my own tip. You know, I'm secular. You know what I mean? I don't just, like, I'm not a slave to religion. And, like, I'm just doing my own thing. And I'm like, you sound just like everybody else. It's the same story. It's not nothing new to come up with your own religion, your faith, to talk about the universe. Like, that's what everybody is into right now. You know what's unique? Coming up and understanding that, wait, there's a God who made me and who wants to be in personal relationship with me and has invited me to come to him. That's on that's some different stuff. But look, he says, you are the king of Israel. This is another exciting thing. See, there was part of the expectation and the messianic hope was that there would be a king who would sit on the throne and uh, through whom he would lead and rule in righteousness and justice. The king of Israel points to his rule and his rightful place in the world. And what he's saying is that, yo, there's a whole lot of people trying to find justice for you right now in this oppressive system in Rome. There's a whole lot of answers that people are trying to pick up arms and just get more militant with it. And they saying that they woke. But you know what? You know where real answers come from with justice? Jesus. Because I made justice. And I know how to relate to that. And I hear your pain and I know the situations. And being in relationship with me, being a witness to me, not just transforms who you are individually, but this whole society as well. I'm the king of Israel. So then the last thing that we see is that we witness because people can only know themselves when they know their creator. <laughs> Look at Jesus' reaction. He says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Oh, you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. He said, oh, Nathaniel, you think that was impressive? You ain't seen nothing yet, bruh. Oh, what, I'm a, what, this three-year journey that you're about to go on with me, you're going to see incredible things. You, that Elijah that they thought John was, you're actually going to see him on a mountain. You know, that this situation, like healing and deliverance, all the things that they talked about accompanying the prophet, you're going to see that. But more importantly, you're going to see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending. He's bringing this picture back to Jacob, 
who saw this vision of a ladder in which the angels of God were going up and down. And what he's saying is what Jacob saw as a vision in a dream, I am the reality of. I am the fulfillment of. I am the actual full presence of the fact that the angels will come. I will open up heaven, and through my death and resurrection, I will actually give you access to the Father when you come follow me. When we are witnesses that Jesus opens heaven up to us. One thing you may have noticed or you may not is that there are seven names for God, that, uh, for Jesus that were given in this early passage. The Lamb of God, which emphasizes his forgiveness. The Son of God, which emphasizes his divine identity. The Messiah, which talks about him being the chosen one that they had been waiting for for all this time. The rabbi, who emphasizes the fact that their whole lives should be governed by what the sins say, say. Then you have Jesus of Nazareth, which emphasizes his humanity and the fact that his weakness that he can identify with, the king of Israel who's coming back to judge the world, and then the son of man who's the divine one who not is just a human but also is God incarnate and with us together. And he says, John is saying, this is the witness. This is the fullness of who this God is. Seven is the number of completion. He's saying this is completes all of who Jesus is. So if Jesus is all of that, if he's our lamb, if he's our rabbi, if he's our, you know, king, if if he's all those things, why is it so hard for us to bear witness to him? Why is it like, oh, I can tell you about my J's, but I can't tell you about the J. (laughs) Like, why is that so tough? Well, well, here's, here's one thing. Rebecca Pipper, who wrote the book Out of the Salt Shaker, she says this. Our problem in evangelism is not that we don't have enough information. It's that we don't know how to be ourselves. We forget we are called to be witnesses to what we have seen and know, not to what we don't know. The key on our part is authenticity and obedience, not a doctorate in theology. You see, and this is what we see here in the text, right? When when, when Nathaniel asks this question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip doesn't say, well, you know, theologically speaking. He just says, come and see. Like, this is what I know. Like, I saw this dude, I met him, and based on what I experienced with him, this is what I believe to be true. And that's all you need to do. That's all we need to do. In fact, I think the main reason why people, our message doesn't seem attractive is because people desire authenticity, and if we try to come at it like we got all the answers, then it just doesn't ring true. But if I'm like, yo, like, I love Jesus, and I still got problems, and my life isn't perfect, but this is why I still have faith in him, that is a whole different reality to share, and that's what it means to be an authentic witness. It's important that we find common ground. There's, uh, in the uh, Bridge Church Instagram, uh, if you look at our, um, there's a link there in the bio that we've put there uh, with an article that talks about uh, the importance and the five things that basically crew uh, ministry that focuses on evangelism has done a research and they asked about a thousand people about non-Christians, like if these things were true, would you be interested in the faith and sharing and people hearing? And what they found is that these five behaviors of people who were t- talking to people who didn't share their same spiritual background, if they did these five things, 84% of the respondents said they would want to talk and have a conversation. 84%. So you want to go and check out that article. But one of the keys is finding common ground. Just finding, just being a normal person. Someone would said, I'm just a beggar trying to tell another beggar where to find bread. That's it. Who can you be a witness to this week? In Isaiah chapter 6, God asked this question of Isaiah 
Isaiah says, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Who will tell the story of what he's done? Who will go? And then Isaiah responds, here I am, send me. So what Jesus is asking is, can I get a witness? Can I get a witness? Is anybody in here not ashamed to give him praise? Is anybody in here not ashamed to say, yo, the Lamb of God took away my sins? Anybody? Let me help you out. Let me help you out. Are you here today? And you said, I was sick and he made me whole. My life was going in the wrong direction and you redeemed my life from the faith. I was self-righteous, but God came into my life and changed everything around. Oh, I can be a witness. Can I get a witness? Can I get a witness that Jesus is the one that transformed our lives? He did it for me and he'll do it for you. That's who he is. <laughs> look, 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 look. John the Baptist, he wasn't even born yet. He was in his mother's womb and then Mary came near him and he started to praise God in the womb. If he can get praise out of an unborn baby, can he get praise out of somebody who had their bills paid? Who had their sicknesses healed? Come on, can I get a witness? Anybody in here knows what Jesus did for them. So then go and tell somebody. Go and tell somebody. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.